0: Well, today is the day we celebrate and reflect on the baptism of Jesus. Every year at this time, the church calendar directs us to this event. It's an event which I'm particularly fond of, and it's one of the few things that I will preach on every year, this text and this event. The baptism of Jesus, contrary to what we might think at first glance, is an event which highlights much of what is important in the life and in the ministry of the church. It's not just an odd, quirky thing off there on the side and we're not quite sure what to do with it. It's a fundamental significance. And by way of introduction, let me give you a couple reasons as to why this is important. First, The baptism of our Lord is recorded in all four Gospels, and outside the events of the last week of Jesus' life, that puts it in very elite company. And secondly, as I hope to show this morning, we could, if we wanted to, preach a large portion, almost the whole, of the history of redemption from this text alone. And so we'll look at the text under five headings. They're there in your outline. The background. The judgment. Righteousness. Third is righteousness. Fourth is new creation. New creation and then ordination. Background, judgment, righteousness. New creation and ordination. Consider yourself lucky. In the past, I've had seven points for this. I'm always having to edit points out. Um, So first, the background. Mark opens his gospel, verse 1. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 1, with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for Mark, the gospel begins here, with the onset of Jesus' public ministry. You will notice that Mark's gospel has no genealogy. He has no infancy narrative. There's no Christmas story in Mark's gospel. For Mark, the beginning of the gospel is, as we see in verse 4, that John came baptizing in the wilderness. That's where he starts. He places the ministry of John the baptizer and the account of his baptism of our Lord right there prominently at the opening of a story. That's how how Mark starts the gospel. And so, we might ask ourselves, why does Mark start his gospel here? Why does he think this is where the gospel begins? I think the Old Testament citation there, in verses 2 and 3, which is both from Malachi and Isaiah, helps us to grasp why Mark can just dive in. Why he can just start the gospel. And the reason is the whole history of Israel has been a preparation for the gospel. We say this over and over and over again here, I know, especially during Advent, but it needs to continually be said. And God had promised that there'd be a special messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord uniquely before the Lord reveals his glory to all the nations. The gospel does not start on Christmas. It starts with the law and the prophets. That's why Mark starts with a citation from Isaiah. And that tells us something important about the background to the gospel. It tells us that the gospel is a historical gospel. We're not in the realm of mythology or mere ideas, but history. And in particular, it's a Jewish gospel. The Gospel has to do with the fulfillment of these promises made in the Law and the Prophets to Israel. Jesus, as we say, cannot be Irish. I was told to stop picking on the Scandinavians. So I'm picking on my own heritage now. Jesus cannot be Irish. So the second point, that's the background. The second point is the judgment. Concerning this John the Baptist, Jesus tells us expressly that in Matthew 11, that John is Elijah whom God promised to send before this great and dreadful day of the Lord. So when does John come? When does Elijah come? He comes before the great, dreadful day of the Lord. And that means the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He represents the culmination of all this work of molding and preparing Israel for this dawning day. And this tells us something else about the gospel. It tells us the gospel is an eschatological gospel. Now, it's a big word, I use it a lot but I always say that I underwrite the usage of it throughout the rest of the year with this sermon right here. Because here is where we want to stop and look at this and unpack its meaning. So if you're not sure what that means, the gospel is an eschatological gospel, just be patient. I think it'll be clearer in a few minutes. If we look, if we gaze at the accounts of this event... The event of Jesus' baptism in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. There's another striking feature which stands out. John the Baptist calls those who are coming to be baptized a brood of vipers. He asks them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? It's not very winsome sermon introduction. He tells them not to rest in their Jewish ethnicity. He says, do not say to yourself, we are the children of Abraham. God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And he continues and he says, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, he tells him, that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with that fire. So Jesus is then, now again, this is in in Matthew and Luke's accounts of this event. He's then said to be ready with his winnowing fan to clear his threshing floor. To gather his wheat into his barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This This is John the Baptist's sermon. And he has one sermon for his whole life, as we've said. John has one sermon. He preaches it all the time. This is the sermon. Now, these are extremely strong words. John piles up these fierce images of a coming fiery judgment fire and brimstone preaching, and it's given to a people who are coming to be baptized. And as verse 5 tells us here in Mark's Gospel, they're confessing their sins as they come. So, we ask, what is going on here? John clearly sees the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as a coming judgment. There's no escaping that. Salvation is always through judgment. And so when Jesus comes and he ushers in the kingdom of God, he is taking, bringing the final judgment on the last day forward into history. So the end, the Greek word for end is eschaton, the end, the eschaton, is breaking into time. This is what we mean when we say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. It takes the future judgment, it brings it forward into our time. It takes the age to come, and it invades into this age. So this is not just a simple um, you know, side feature of the gospel. The gospel is an eschatological gospel everywhere, always, at all points, and at all times, and in every possible way. That's what it is. It is the end of all. This is why John the Baptist preaches the way he does. So something wonderful happens here. And it's the reason that the baptism of Jesus must be proclaimed and really celebrated after Advent. So the one who is going to administer the wrath which is to come. The one who John says has an axe in his hand laid at the root of the tree. The one who baptizes with fire. The one who has a winnowing fan in his hand and who's ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That one appears on this scene. He is ready to bring the end. He is ready to usher in his kingdom. And how does he appear? He appears remarkably as one of us. He's waiting in line with his guilty guilty countrymen. There he is. He's sitting right uh, over there. He's on the wrong side of the line. He's shuffling along with the unwashed masses. And he's ready to submit himself to John's preaching and baptizing ministry. And this means he identifies fully with Israel and with you and I under John's scathing account of the coming judgment. The gospel is an account of Jesus bearing our judgment in advance of the final fiery judgment. It's a glorious thing when Jesus stands with us in the line. So, the third point is righteousness. If we're honest, we'll admit that Jesus' appearance, Jesus as a candidate for baptism, Creates problems for us. I mean, if it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which the text says it is, if it's a fleeing from the wrath which is to come, then why does Jesus submit to it? This was obviously a scandal for John the Baptist as well. It, over in Matthew's account, John objects and he says, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? See, John doesn't get the point either quite yet. And our Lord's reply to John's instructive. He says, permit it to be so for now. For thus we will fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus says to John, baptize me because when you baptize me, you're going to fulfill all righteousness, he's saying something like, you're going to fulfill the whole condensed history of the Old Testament. If I'm going to fulfill the promises concerning the Messiah and the righteousness of God that he brings, then I must submit to this baptism. And so Jesus is saying to us, for God's righteousness, for his kingdom to be fulfilled, he must identify in solidarity with you and I, fully and completely. He must be baptized into our sinfulness and need. He must be identified with us. And so, among the many things that this text teaches us is this. Jesus is not identified with our corruption solely at the cross. But across the whole of his life, the whole of his life is what we call vicarious, meaning lived out for us. Again, Calvin, from the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price for our liberation. Jesus is paying the price for your liberation long before Calvary. And John's baptism highlights that. He he lives identified with you. So he can die identified for you. One of the church fathers, an anonymous church father, puts it this way. He says, even as he fulfilled the righteousness of baptism... He fulfilled the righteousness of being born and growing, of eating and drinking, of sleeping and relaxing. He also fulfilled the righteousness of experiencing temptation, fear, flight, sadness, as well as suffering, death, and resurrection. That is, according to the requirement of the human nature he took upon himself, he fulfilled all these acts of righteousness. It's one long, obedient baptism into our need so that he could live out this righteousness. And you'll remember, Jesus called his death, he called his death a baptism. And it's a baptism that's deeply linked. It's locked into this baptism we're looking at this morning. You can sort of think of the two bookends of Jesus' ministry. This event and the cross, as baptisms. This baptism in water implies that baptism in blood. That bloody baptism fulfills this baptism at the hands of John. So that the whole of his life is a baptism into our corruption, to heal it and to restore it. He undergoes baptism so that you can be baptized into the baptized one. He's already gone before you, even in baptism. Calvin has another uh, startling quote on, on this event right here. Listen to these words. He says, Christ dedicated and sanctified baptism by his own body, that he might have it in common with us. In one sense, there's one baptism common to Jesus and his people. He dedicated it, He sanctified it, that He might have it in common with us as the firmest bond of the union and fellowship He has deigned to form with us. When is the last time you said that Jesus' baptism is the firmest bond of union and fellowship that you have with Him? See, Calvin's theological instincts here are shaped by everything we're looking at. He looks at this event, and he says, that event is the firmest bond of union that I have with Jesus. It is so so firm that my baptism is a baptism into the one who was baptized on my behalf. The firmest bond of union and fellowship that Christ has deigned to form with us is forged in his baptism. So here in this text. Jesus is saying. They need cleansing. I'll stand with them. And purify them. They're confessing their sins. Then let me be numbered. With their, their transgressors. In my life. As well as in my death. Let their sins be confessed on my head. The wrath. Which is to come, the axe which cuts down unfruitful trees, the unquenchable fire which burns up the chaff, all Jesus, all these, Jesus the righteous judge, says, I shall take them on my own head. The fire and the brimstone, which John the Baptist preaches, Jesus, by standing in line and submitting to this rite, says, Pour the fire out on me. Pour their deserved judgment out on myself. This is a vivid picture of the gospel in this text. It is the judge declaring that he will be the judged. So the fourth point, new creation. The text uh, moves to these familiar and very dramatic events Beginning in verse 9, Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn, the Spirit descends like a dove and the Father declares, you are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now there's a very rich you know, array of symbolism here, I just, I'm just going to note a couple things. The Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit present at creation At creation, the Father speaks His word, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. That same triune God is present at this action because this action is the public unfolding of events which bring the new creation. When the Spirit descends like a dove, we're reminded of the Spirit hovering. Dove-like, over the original creation. And so the first thing you see here is Jesus is the new creation. He's the inaugurator of the new creation. He's the new Adam. Did you notice that the Old Testament lesson this morning, which I don't don't select this. This is from the church's lectionary. This is from the, the rooted historical wisdom of the church. The lesson was Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Why does the church read from Genesis 1, 1 through 5, on the Sunday of Jesus' baptism? Because Jesus' baptism sets forth Jesus as the new creation. As the renewal of the whole cosmos. Even as the first world was created out of water. So the new creation comes through our Lord's baptismal waters. And the dove reminds us of the dove which returned to Noah's ark. Jesus bears the waters of judgment and thus he is the ark of salvation. He's the new Adam. He's the new Noah. Not only this, but the word for the heavens being torn, if you see that in the text, is used in the Old Testament for dividing the Red Sea. And Jesus is depicted here then as the new Moses who affects a new exodus, who, who releases us from bondage and from sin. And if that sounds maybe a little too fanciful or speculative, the subsequent narrative, immediately after this baptism, has the same spirit which fell upon Jesus here, driving him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It's in the next, it's in Mark uh, verses 1, verses 12 and 13. As Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea and was tempted for 40 years in the wilderness and failed, Jesus comes through the waters of his baptism, is tempted 40 days and nights in the wilderness, and prevails. The point is very clear in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is the new faithful Moses slash Israel. And so in this simple Descent of the Spirit onto the Messiah. He set forth as the new Adam and the new Noah and the new Moses and the new Israel. In short, He is the new creation. He is all in all. He's the key to history. The fifth point, final point, is His ordination. This point ties all the others together, I hope. John's Gospel tells us that John the Baptist came baptizing so that Jesus would be revealed, unveiled to Israel. And so Jesus, then, is in this event publicly ordained into and empowered for his role as the Messiah. Now, we know this because in John's Gospel, when Jesus is asked, by what authority do you do these things? He replies, as is his wont, to their question with a question. He says, I'll answer my opponents if they first answer this question. And you may recall the question Jesus asked. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Why does Jesus do that? He's asked, by what authority are you acting? He says, I want to ask you a question about the baptism of John. He says, he's saying, if you want to know about the source of my authority for public ministry in Israel, then you should look at my baptism at the hands of John. And you should look at the Father's attestation to it and the Holy Spirit descending. My baptism is my ordination as Israel's Messiah. You got a question about my credentials? Check with John and the baptism I received at his hands. It's this ordination, this anointing, this empowering with the Spirit which enables him to live as the new Adam and the new Noah and the new Moses and the new Israel, the new creation. It is to this event that we are looking at this morning This baptism that Jesus is referring to when he begins his public preaching ministry with these words. When he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news. That's the spirit which descended. Consecrates him as the Messiah. And empowers him to proclaim the gospel to you and me. It is indeed fitting that this event is placed immediately after the Advent cycle in the church year, because we're reminded here that Jesus, who humbled himself to take on our humanity, has not yet reached the depths of humiliation. This text reminds us that Jesus' descent does not terminate with Christmas. Rather, he continues throughout his whole public ministry to descend and to descend and to descend, to empty himself, to stand with us, to identify with us, to get in line with us in all of our alienation, in all of our need, in all of our frailty. So here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Jesus, the incarnate judge, is unreservedly and forever on your side. In this event, quite literally, on your side of the line. That's good news. So this is baptism. This baptism. And the subsequent baptism in blood at Calvary. They turn that coming judgment ordeal of which John the Baptist spoke. All of that fire and brimstone. An ordeal which we all face. They turn that ordeal into the blessed, healing, renewing, refreshing waters of Christian baptism. This is why Jesus' baptism is so important. And when Jesus baptizes us into his baptism, then we are united by faith to the one who, as verse 7 says, is well-pleasing to his Father in heaven. And as such then, and only as such, we, you, are well-pleasing. Fully accepted in the beloved Son of God. The baptized one. Praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen.